So we are nearing the end here of our walk through Ecclesiastes. After today, we only have uh, two more weeks uh, in this book. And this book is all about how to live well in a cursed world. A world where things do not go as we would often uh, like them to go. Where all of life is vanity. If you remember, that word means breath in the Hebrew. That life kind of eludes us. We try to control it and uh, we really can't find that satisfaction that we long for. And so we try to control life and that is like Solomon says, chasing or shepherding the wind. It's like trying to control something that is always slipping through your fingers. And since the beginning of chapter 9, Solomon starts wrapping up this book for us, offering us a summary of everything he's covered and his concluding points. And so two weeks ago we saw uh, how death mutes all of the beauty and joy of life and how we are called to accept that reality, but then also to enjoy life as God gives it to us. Life is a gift and it is meant to be enjoyed. Now through the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 10, we revisit the idea of wisdom. How do we live wisely in this world? Ecclesiastes is, after all, a wisdom book about living well in a broken world. And there really is no shortage of advice out there today for how to do just that. Whether it be TED Talks or self-help books or uh, 30 second videos on TikTok. Everybody's got their idea of how you can live well in this life. And Ecclesiastes takes a lot of the tropes that we normally have, a lot of the shallow advice, and it just shatters them. It says, yeah, that's not really helping. That's really not going to work. And so wisdom in its most basic sense, as I've said, is living life well. And that assumes that there is some standard by which we can determine if we are living life well or not. In other words, it's not up to you to decide what the good life is. It's not up to you to say this is wisdom and this is not. There is an eternal standard out there that we are to measure everything by. And the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. If you want to know If you want to know anything in this world, you must recognize the Lord. If you want to be wise, it will not, as the world tells you, come from within. It doesn't start with you knowing yourself well. It starts with you knowing the Lord, the creator of the universe. And we need to get that straight because I think we could all agree that each and every one of us wants to live well. Each of us wants to have a good life, wants to have satisfaction in this life, even though we know that it's a vapor, even though we know that it often eludes our control. And so we start with this realization. Wisdom comes from the Lord, and it is therefore worth pursuing. The Lord is the source of wisdom. The Lord is the highest and greatest good, and therefore wisdom is worth pursuing. And so in chapter, our back half of chapter 9 here in chapter 10, We're going to get a picture of the value of wisdom. We're going to get a picture of some of the threats to wisdom in our life. And then we're going to take a step back and apply this to us as Christians. So we'll see here in 9, 13 through 18, that wisdom is better than. So that's how he starts this section. He's going to tell this little story and he's going to make this conclusion that wisdom is better than you fill in the blank. It's better than all these other things. In other words, this is something you want to pursue more than you pursue these other things. And Solomon says, 
this example he has for us that he has seen is great. It is great to me. In other words, pay attention. This one's rather important. Look again at verses nine through eight, or sorry, 13 through 18 in chapter 9. It says, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. And there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered this poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So there's this little city, and it is besieged by this great and mighty king. All right, so it's a small city, in other words, that as far as human experience and knowledge and wisdom is concerned, this city stood no chance. It had no chance to repel this invading army and this great king. And for whatever reason, the city turns to a poor man who is also wise. And in it, this poor man is able to deliver the small city from the great and mighty king. And so Solomon says wisdom is greater than military strength. This is the advantage that wisdom brings, that it can outmaneuver superior weapons and technology. In these six little verses, he says that wisdom is better than uh, at least two things. That it is of greater value than, first, political and military strength. History is literally riddled with stories, and we love these stories, of superior forces being defeated by smaller forces. And those become historically significant because of the wisdom, the cunning, the boldness, and the braveness of the smaller forces. Whether you think of, of King Leonidas and his 300 against the great Persian Empire, or you can think of the militias of the colonies who fended off the greatest world power at that time in Great Britain. By the standard of men, there's no way that should have happened. But it did because of the wisdom of the leaders behind it. And we could go on and on with the pages of history with examples of just that. Wisdom can outproduce military strength. In other words, might does not guarantee success. And evil is often self-destructive. And there's something here that Christians should definitely be instructed on. Jesus instructs his followers in the Gospels that we are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as as doves. I think we got this whole innocent of doves things down, generally. Not that we're totally innocent. But when we think about what a, what a Christian is like, what the ideal Christian is like, we, we would associate that with being as gentle or as innocent as doves. But do we also think about Christians being as wise or as shrewd as serpents? And yet this is how Christ has instructed us. One of the reasons why Faithful Christians have lost denominations and schools and churches and families is that we fail at the simple command of being as shrewd as serpents. We don't think two to three, four steps ahead. We're always just reacting. We are always letting the enemy set the agenda. And yet Christ instructs us to be shrewd in our planning, our execution, only revealing what needs to be revealed and outmaneuvering the enemies of God's people. And this is to mirror God. 
Wisdom comes from God. Shrewdness comes from God. God did not reveal all of His plan at the beginning, but slowly throughout the story of Scripture, it came into focus. Wisdom is better than political strength. Yes, but he also says it's better than being popular. Notice that this poor wise man delivers the small town, and then the small town forgets him. No good deed goes unpunished. He saves the small town, and they want nothing to do with him after that. I mean, after all, he's a poor, uneducated, non-enlightened, deplorable individual. So we want nothing to do with him. And Solomon drives this point home one more time. He says, The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is greater than, or better than, popularity. Receiving your wisdom, or even giving your wisdom in quiet, is better than the shouting of fools and rulers among one another. Let the listener hear and understand that. It is better to work on the fringes and to actually have wisdom heard and given than to be stuck with the powerful at the seat at the table and to be stuck with fools. So often we want to be platformed. We want to generate likes and shares and to have a megaphone to others, especially among the powerful. And Solomon says that is not all it's cracked up to be. It really isn't. How else can we describe our day where folly is considered wisdom, where up is down, wrong is right, inflation is good, debt is wise, and men are women? Shouting of fools among the powerful. And it can seem like we're getting pushed out. The emperor literally runs around stark raving, mad and naked as can be, and everybody falls down and says, what beautiful clothes you have on. The shouting of fools among the rulers. And Christians rightly worry about being exiled and deplatformed and whatnot, but Solomon has a word for us here. Be not envious of that. It is better that wisdom is given in quiet than it is to be platformed among the idiots. For it is better to have real wisdom heard in secret than to be around foolish leaders. Thus, wisdom is better than popularity. It is more important than finding your own truth. It is more important than you being liked. And Jesus, again, warned us of such things. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You cannot be friends with the world and with God. Get used to it. You'll be better off for it. After describing the greatness of wisdom, Solomon then will now describe some, some threats we find to wisdom. Despite it being desirable, despite it being better than so many things, wisdom is hard to have in this life. And there are many things that would lead us off of the path. And the first threat to wisdom he gives us is hard hearts and closed ears. In other words, most of us don't really want to be bothered with wisdom in the first place. Again, to this poor, wise man. Wisdom is better than might, even though a poor man's wisdom is despised and not heard. What often prevents us from becoming wise is that we always think we're right. I know I've been guilty of that. Maybe some of you have been too. We are told again and again in a million different ways that we can never be wrong. And if that somebody thinks you're wrong, that person is unsafe. 
but actually that is the fountain of wisdom or the fountain of folly. God's people fell away again and again because they would not listen. He would describe his people Israel as stiff-necked, hard-hearted, deaf, and dumb because they would not listen. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and the people stuck their fingers in their ears. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs tells us that a fool rejects correction. That if you want to be wise, the first thing you need to do is to be willing to listen to others. And when I say that, I do not mean in the hip postmodern way of listening, listening uncritically to others and just take whatever they say at face value. But listen and measure everything according to the standard of God's word. Listen to what Solomon says elsewhere here. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me read it to you again. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We literally live in a day in which we think we can't be friends with someone if they correct us. We literally live in a day where we are trained from a very young age to get upset if anybody dares to offer us correction. Solomon corrects us here by saying, our friends can faithfully wound us because they are seeking our good. And in that, we can grow in wisdom. But conversely to that, the kisses or the praise of the enemy are profuse. They're disgusting. They're destructive. They feel good in the moment, but they lead us to folly. Where a true friend wants our best and will share hard words for us out of love, an enemy will flatter us to our own demise. All you have to do is think of what Satan did in the garden to Eve. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons our lives fall apart, our denominations do, our schools do, is that we cannot tell a true friend from an enemy. I want that to sink in. We often do not understand who our true friends are and who the enemies are. We have come to value the kisses of our enemy and his flattery more than we have the wounds that come from a friend. We love to be praised and we hate to be corrected. And that is the height of folly. The second threat to wisdom is sin. Look at the second half there of verse 18. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Then into verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom in honor. You can, Solomon says here, have great wisdom, but one sinner, one sin, can ruin the whole thing and undo all that good. Even a little bit of folly can undermine wisdom and honor. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know this to be true as we see high-profile ministers fall again and again and again. All their good is wiped out with one mistake. Wisdom mixed with folly and sin is tainted and corrupted. It is like a dead fly in your perfume or ointment. It makes it unclean. Let me put that in modern words for you. If you had a big salad for lunch and you found one cockroach in it, most of it is still salad. 
but the whole salad is ruined because there's a cockroach in it. Or if someone handed you a glass of water and said, there's only a little bit of urine in this glass, would you still drink it? That is the point Solomon is getting at. So the wise must guard against sin, putting up barriers in their lives and checks and balances and accountability because one sin can ruin the whole thing. A third threat to wisdom is foolishness in general. Wisdom and folly really are mutually exclusive. They're, they're binary. They go in two different directions. He says a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Besides the obvious political joke of right and left here, what Solomon's actually getting at is that they're two different directions. You don't go on one path while going on the other. You have to go in one or the other. Wisdom heads towards God and folly away from Him. Moreover, the further the one gets down the path of folly, the more obvious his foolishness gets. Solomon says, as you walk down the road as a fool, it becomes apparent to everybody that you're just not that bright. And boy, is that truth becoming more and more evident in our culture. You can watch somebody walk by at the supermarket and be very certain that that person has become a fool just by how they carry themselves. Fools are at war with reality in general. The very way they carry themselves says that I am an idiot. The fourth threat to wisdom is anger. Solomon writes, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Anger is not always sinful. God himself gets angry. And yet the vast majority of occurrences of anger in Scripture warn us against it. It is possible to be righteously angry, but it is very hard to do so. It takes a lot of self-control to be angry in a righteous way. And in what the heart of that type of anger is that you do not let that anger rule over you. You do not let the anger control you. Rather, you control your anger. It's easy to say, but hard to live out. And the final threat to wisdom that he lists here is bad leaders. We've seen this theme again and again in the book of Ecclesiastes. It keeps popping up that this idea of bad leaders being a threat. And as a king, Solomon was very aware of the blessing of good leadership and the curse of really bad leaders. And we have a fair share of really bad leaders today. But listen to what he says here. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Solomon says, pay attention here. This is kind of a big deal. This is an evil that I have seen under the sun. When there is folly set in high places, where error comes forth from the rulers, that is a major threat to wisdom. When the ministry of truth sells lies, we're all in trouble. He says it is like having a slave riding on a war horse. And the horses are reserved for rulers and kings. And it is like having true princes walking around on the ground in chains like a slave. Now I know what you're thinking here. How can Solomon know that they're riding on a horse? He's not a veterinarian. 
Let the hearer understand. We are living in that day where lies proceed from the powerful. Where utter folly is set up and is demanding that everyone bend the knee to it. And so we have slaves on the throne and princes in chains. Let the reader, or sorry, the listener, understand. Scripture talks about this stuff all the time. And thus the kingdom of darkness mocks wisdom even though their wisdom is nothing but a bad joke. So these are some of the threats he lists to wisdom. If you want a more detailed list of threats to wisdom, go read the book of Proverbs, Solomon's other book. But the point is, wisdom is beneficial. Therefore, verses 8 through 20, pursue it. Pursue it. It's worthwhile. The rest of the chapter is Solomon explaining different aspects of wisdom in the form of Proverbs, and to show us that wisdom is beneficial throughout all of life. Wisdom is about living well. Not just living well in your spiritual life, but living well throughout the entirety of your life. It seeks to bring the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord into the center of your life throughout every sphere that you touch. So you must not miss that. We must not miss that the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Let me rephrase that. Love God with your whole being into all of your life. That's what the great commandment is. And so Solomon puts this forward for us to see that wisdom has a totalizing impact on your life. And he starts those Proverbs out by saying, if you dig a pit, you're going to fall into it. This is an allusion to falling. If you live foolishly, you're digging a pit that you're only going to fall into yourself. You can run on a long time and and sin, but eventually God will cut you down. And then he offers some smattering bits of wisdom. He says, sharpen your blade before you cut down a tree. Right? Work smarter, not harder. Do the preparatory work. Do the routine maintenance, because it will pay off for you in the end. And he says, watch your words, lest they bless you or destroy you. The Bible places a premium on what you say, and that God will judge every idle word. Another warning he gives is about good leaders and bad leaders, yet again. I think we've beaten that dead horse. And then he gives us a call to work hard and to avoid being lazy. Hard work generally pays off. And as you work hard, you mirror your creator God, who worked for six days and rested on the seventh. Enjoy your bread and your wine. Uh, Use your money to solve the unexpected problems that come up in life. And be careful what you say about your leaders. He ends the chapter. It has a way of getting back to them. I guess I didn't heed that earlier. (laughs) Basically, wisdom is all-encompassing and impacts all of life because God made everything and God upholds everything. Wisdom is worth pursuing throughout your life. And so that leads us to our, our closing question. How then do you gain wisdom? In this age, the only way to gain wisdom is through Christ and Christ alone. I'm going to give you uh, some, some verses here to help you see that Jesus Christ, God the Son, who took upon himself a human nature, is the very incarnation and personification of wisdom. It all flows from him. Colossians 2, verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And well, John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth 
come through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.6 But we, that is the church, have the mind of Christ. Let those verses sit upon you for a moment. The one in Colossians 2 comes right after Paul's very famous passage about the glory of Christ. That in Him He created all things and that He holds all things together. That He is preeminent and supreme over everything. And right on the heels of that, he says that God has laid in Him all of the uh, treasures of wisdom. In the verses right after this, he'll warn them to not be taken captive by empty and hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world. God is the source of wisdom, and he has put the access point to that wisdom through the person of Jesus Christ. If you want true wisdom in this age, it can only come through knowing him. Everything else is just a pale imitation. Because he is the preeminent Lord over creation who created all things. And he's also the preeminent Lord over salvation in the head of the church. And so in Christ, God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Not some of them. Right? Notice, after we finish this book, we're going into Colossians. And this idea of all here is going to be important in Colossians. That all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in Christ. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says this. The treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us, but for us in Christ. So this isn't God trying to conceal them for you. He's placed all of the wisdom in Christ so that you would have access to it. That you would have the mind of Christ. So let me put it another way. Even as somebody who's got very, uh, very many letters after his name, you don't need a PhD to be wise. You don't need higher education to become intelligent before the Lord. All you need is to be unified by grace through faith to the source of wisdom who is Christ Jesus. All of the wisdom of God and of this universe is hidden in Christ the Lord. And you have access to it by grace through faith in Him alone. True wisdom and knowledge comes from knowing that Jesus. The one who died, the one who rose, and the one who is coming back. Who reigns over everything. He holds all things together. He created all things. He died for all things. And he is remaking all things. And at his name, every knee will bow. If you go to him for wisdom, he will give it to you. You have the mind of Christ. We as the church have the mind of Christ if we would only take the faithful wounds of a friend instead of the profuse kisses of the enemy, our churches wouldn't be so messed up as they are. Go to him, and he will give you wisdom from above. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are the source of all knowledge, of all truth, and of all wisdom. Lord, we pray that you might give us that mind of Christ that we might search the depths of the wisdom that you have placed in him, and that we might come out the other side looking more like our Savior. Lord, on our own, we are all fools. On our own, we are all sinners who ruin everything. But by your grace and by your work, we are made new. So Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, direct our paths, that we might become more like Christ. And we ask that he would come and come quickly.
It's in his name we pray. Amen.